question I'd like to consider this evening is what we actually learn from being mindful. What wisdom emerges from the practice of being aware that has the power to liberate our minds, to liberate our hearts from all the causes of suffering. So the Buddha gave very explicit and specific uh, instructions in this regard. Um, It's really a very clear statement. He said, bhikkhus, and again a reminder, bhikkhus in its most general sense means all of us who are walking on the path. Bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Suppose because people were to carry off the grass, the sticks, the branches and foliage in this grove of trees, or to burn them or to do with them as they wish, would you think people are carrying us off or burning us or doing with us as they wish? And the bhikkhus replied, no, venerable sir, because that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. So too bhikkhus form, these physical elements. Form is not yours, feeling is not yours, perception is not yours, volitional formations are not yours, consciousness is not yours. Abandon them. When you have abandoned what is not yours, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. <laughs> so it's very clear. The question is, how do we actually accomplish this? You know, we can understand the teaching, but how do we live it? How do we accomplish it in our lives? our attachment to and our identification with the aggregates, which is the form and feelings and perceptions and volitional formations and consciousness, our attachment to and our identification with the aggregates, both as the individual constituents of our experience, you know, that is we get attached to the body, attached to feelings, identified with them, identified with perceptions, So we get attached and identified with them individually and also collectively, we get attached to the aggregates collectively as being the sense of self, as being who I am. This concept of self, as we know, is very strong. So what insights help us to cut through this very deeply ingrained attachment, these deeply habituated patterns of clinging. I'll give a little kind of historical background to the teaching. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he spent seven weeks sitting under and around the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, uh, contemplating different aspects of his enlightenment, his awakening. And then he started wondering, 
you know, who might understand these very profound teachings of liberation? And he thought of the five ascetics, you know, with whom he had practiced the austerities uh, in the previous years. And he realized that their minds would be fertile ground for the teachings, that they really had the potential to understand them. So it's said that he, the Buddha journeyed by foot from Bodh Gaya to a little village called Sarnath, which is across the river Ganges from Banaras, where the five ascetics were staying. And on the full moon of June, he gave his first discourse, which, as you know, it's called Setting the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. And it's just interesting to reflect on the fact that this wheel of Dharma has rolled over oceans and continents for the last 2,600 years, and somehow (coughs) it's landed in Barry, Massachusetts. And it's quite remarkable, isn't it? I mean, 2,600 years of Dharma teachings. So in this first discourse, when he set the wheel of the Dharma in motion, the Buddha laid out the middle path, the middle way between the extremes of self-indulgence on the one hand and self-mortification on the other. And he laid out the framework of the Four Noble Truths. So this was all in this first discourse. And these teachings are the foundation, became the foundation, for the next 45 years of his teachings as he wandered northern India. Upon hearing this first discourse, one of the five ascetics, his name was Kandanya, became a stream enterer. You know, so his, his wisdom eye was opened. And over the next few days, under the Buddha's guidance, And there's some extraordinary karma there, having the Buddha as one's guide. (laughs) Just five of them with the Buddha. (laughs) That's kind of a happy thought. (coughs) So under the Buddha's guidance, over the next few days, all five ascetics became stream enterers. Then the Buddha gave his second discourse, And it's called in Pali the Anatta Lakana Sutta, which means the discourse (coughs) on the characteristic of no-self, of non-self. And by the end of this discourse on the characteristic of non-self, all five of the ascetics were fully liberated, became arhants. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this discourse tonight with the same expectation. (laughs) If they can do it, why don't we do it? (laughs) So the teaching of non-self is really at the heart of the Buddha's realization. But unlike the truths of impermanence, or the truth of dukkha, which are really easily understood, even if we haven't fully realized them, 
but they're not difficult to understand. You know, that things are impermanent or dukkha. But the understanding of anatta, of selflessness, of non-self, this is not so obvious. It's counterintuitive. You know, it doesn't, it's not part of our common sense view of the world. And the very language we use, you know, we speak continually of I, the subject I, as being the center and the reference point of all our experience. And this is just reinforcing in our conventional language this tightly held belief that there's someone, there's some I, there's some self to whom all experience is happening. And the teachings and the practice and what we can learn from being mindful is that that's an illusion, that that's a mental construct. And it's this very teaching which illuminates the non-self aspect of experience that led the five ascetics and countless other beings over these thousands of years to what the Buddha called the heart's sure release. It's this understanding of selflessness the realization that really has the power to liberate us from so many kinds of suffering. So I'd like to just begin the exploration of this discourse of the Buddha, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, seeing how we can come in ourselves and in our own practice and in our own lives to a deeper understanding of it, of how we can actually apply it and kind of let the seeds of that understanding grow within us. So I'm going to read short pieces from the sutta itself. It's important when we listen you know, to the teachings, when we, when we are listening to the suttas, uh, that we listen in a certain frame of mind. And listening is very powerful, I think more powerful than actually reading. Now, if we're in the right frame of mind and let the words come in, and we take the words not as a description of things, but as an instruction, the Buddha is telling us what to do, how to understand. You know, so listen to the words, I mean, if you can make this leap, as if it's actually the Buddha speaking to you. you know. And see if the words, you know, let them in in that way. It's not, it's not about philosophy, it's about doing them uh, as, as we hear them. So in reading a bit of the sutta, there's one Pali word which I'm going to leave untranslated. And we've talked a lot about it. And that is the word dukkha. Now, in the Four Noble Truths, all revolve around this word. There's the truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, the path leading to the end of dukkha. So, understanding this word is, is key. One of the problems for us is that there is no one single word in English which is a good translation of it. Now, it's often translated as suffering. 
And in many cases, that's very apt. It does refer to the suffering, you know, of the body and the mind. And we're all familiar. I mean, we, we can relate to that aspect. You know, we've all experienced pain and suffering to some degree or other in our lives. But how do we reconcile the Buddhist statement, all conditioned things, which means all of our experience, everything we experience. The Buddha is saying all conditioned things are dukkha. So how does that, how do, we, how do we understand that? Because many of the things we experience are pleasurable, you know, and bring us happiness. So what does dukkha mean in that context? So here we need to expand our understanding of what this Pali word means. It doesn't mean only suffering. It also means things are unreliable. They're insecure. They're not capable of giving lasting fulfillment. So here we can understand, yeah, even pleasurable things, even things that bring us happiness, we can understand as being unreliable. You know, as being insecure. So this is the meaning of dukkha in that context. (coughs) There's a very uh, critical relationship between the realization and the understanding of dukkha and the understanding of anatta, of selflessness we can actually begin to realize the selfless nature of phenomena in our deepening understanding of dukkha. And that's really the the main part of the talk tonight. Okay, so this is the first part of the sutta, this discourse on the characteristic of non-self. So on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Benares in the Deer Park uh, at Sarnath, and he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five, the five ascetics, bhikkhus. Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this. Bhikkhus, form, that is the first aggregate, and that means the body, the physical material elements of the world but particularly we can understand it as as the body. This is what is meant by form, rupa. Because form is non-self. Were form self, then this form, this body, would not lead to affliction. And if it were self, it would be possible to to determine, let my form, let my body be like this. Let my body not be like this. But because form or the body is not self, it leads to affliction and it is not possible to determine, let my body be like this, let my body not be like this. So there are two qualities in just these few lines that the Buddha is highlighting, two aspects showing the relationship of dukkha to non-self. First, the Buddha is saying that the elements of the body, 
in their nature lead to affliction. And the second thing he's saying is these elements of the body, rupa, are ungovernable. They follow their own laws of nature. These elements are not subject to our wish. They're not amenable to our will. So we need to investigate these two aspects and test them for ourselves, you know, because otherwise we are hearing this as Buddhist philosophy and it's not particularly transformative. We have to hear these words and test it against our own experience. Is this true? Is this true for me? So the first question would be, how do these physical elements, or do these physical elements of the body, do they lead to affliction? Actually, this is not very hard to see. This is not such a subtle matter. Even if, for the most part, we prefer not to acknowledge the truth, you know, of these elements. We can see the afflictive nature, and this means the nature to cause affliction, to cause suffering, in some of the very ordinary daily activities of our lives. We can see this truth playing itself out. You know, there's the very ordinary, everyday affliction of hunger and thirst. But we don't often recognize it as such because for most of us, we can easily take food and have drink. And so we appease those afflictions. And so we don't realize that it's actually dukkha which is driving those actions. It's the dukkha of the body which drives us to eat. It's the dukkha of the body which drives us to quench our thirst. And what's interesting to reflect is how for many millions of people in the world, these basic needs of the body, driven by dukkha, driven by affliction, by suffering, these needs are not easily met. So I just, I just happened to read uh, today, <coughs> I was reading some article and it was describing how over a billion people in the world do not have access to safe water. A billion people. Yeah, and something we take so much for granted. And it was describing how millions of women, especially in the developing countries, it said have to walk at least three miles a day and carry 25 pounds of water you know, back to where they're living, just to assuage this affliction of the body. So in those circumstances, it would be very clear that the nature of the body, the nature of the elements can lead to affliction. But we, we mask, it's masked for us, you know, because it's so easily uh, <coughs> alleviated most of our lives. Something that, that's even more obvious, particularly to yogis, is the inherent 
afflictive nature of the body in this in the very simple necessity to change posture in order to relieve discomfort. And one time, <laughs> one time I was with Deepama, you know, our teacher from India, and who was this extraordinary yogi. And she turned to me and she said, Joseph, why don't you sit for two days? And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant to sit down and not get up for two days. Because she had the capacity to do that. She could go into like, you know, very deep meditative states. She actually sat once for three days without moving. So she said that to me, and I just laughed. <laughs> and her response was, she said, Joseph, don't be lazy. <laughs> I said, this is beyond laziness. <laughs> we, <laughs> unless we, you know, somebody like Deepama, we don't have the capacity and the affliction of the body at some point or another motivates us to move. You know, if you're walking, at some point, you could be walking an hour or two or three or four, at some point, you're going to feel really tired and need to sit down or lie down. You know, if sitting, as you well know, at some point, the affliction of the body, you're not doing anything, you're just sitting there. But the nature of the body, at a certain point, is gonna get so uncomfortable, you're gonna need to stretch or move or change position. Even lying down. Remember one time in India, I was just so fed up with this. So I got, I got this big, thick piece of foam, and I thought, I'm gonna just lie down, completely stretched out, nothing crossed, nothing bent. I'm gonna just lie there on this bed of foam. It didn't take that long before that position too became uncomfortable. You know, because it is the nature of the elements. So it's worthwhile paying attention to this. So in all of these examples, we see that we habitually mask the truth of dukkha. We're covering it by taking food or drink, by changing posture. You know, we we mask dukkha by movement. And we're masking the truth that these elements, in and of themselves, it's just in their nature. At a certain point, they are afflictive. Now what's interesting is that we commonly mistake this pattern of masking the dukkha you know, by taking food, by taking drink, by changing posture, because we're not really paying attention to what's happening at that time, we often interpret this to ourselves, not necessarily consciously, but I think we've absorbed it unconsciously, as being that we have some control over the elements, that in some way they are subject to our will. 
right? And so we're creating that sense of self by not seeing their nature. So the beauty of a retreat is we can really take a look and not be masking this truth. When we move, can we see what's motivating that movement? Yeah, there's some dukkha, there's some affliction of the body which is motivating the movement. When we take food, when we take water, when many of the things we do. So in this, the first noble truth becomes so vivid in our practice and in our lives. It's not just you know, a Buddhist philosophical statement. We are actually experiencing the truth of it. We can see the afflictive nature of the body in other ways and the ungovernable nature, the fact that it's not subject to our control. You know, probably all of us would like to stay young and healthy with a vigorous, active body, you know, capable of doing all the things that we would like to do. But for some strange reason, the body doesn't seem to oblige us. Right? It's not following our wishes. Quite without our agreement, the body ages. The body grows ill, the body dies. Is there anybody here who says, oh, let me have kidney stones. Let me not be able to breathe well. No, these things, these things are not happening because we want them to happen or because we invite them to happen. It's the nature of the elements. Can we let this in? This is, it's, what's so striking to me is that on one level it's so obvious and on another level we have a very hard time to acknowledge it. Yes, this is just nature. This is, this is how things are. None of this, this, this afflicting nature of the elements and the fact that they're not under our control, none of it is a mistake. It's not that something is wrong. It's just nature at work. It's for this reason, the Buddha said, rupa, form, the body, the physical elements, is not oneself. If rupa, this body, were self, we should be able to determine, let it be like this and not be like that. But we can't do that. And that illuminates for us the selfless nature of these elements. It's ungovernable, it doesn't belong to us. And so the Buddha is saying, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. Now abandon here doesn't mean to ignore it, and it doesn't mean not to take care of it. Rather, with all the physical elements, and then the sutta goes on with all of the other aggregates as well. This evening I'm just emphasizing the first of the aggregates, the body. So it's not that we don't take care of it. 
but rather can we, can we understand this nature of it as a way of cutting through our attachment to it, our clinging to it, our identifying with it as being self, as being I, as being mine. So the challenge for us is how can we deepen our understanding of this? I don't think it's so difficult to kind of grasp it on an intellectual level and even to begin that process of relating it to our own experience, both in meditation and in our lives. But how can we continue to deepen it? Because the attachment to the body, the identification with the body as being self, as being I, is very strong, it's very deep. So this, this is our practice. We really have to uh, keep looking at this. So one, one way of deepening our understanding you know, of this nature of the body, and it's, it's really a very profound teaching and recollection. And Greg spoke a little bit about this uh, last week. There's a collection of suttas, discourses, uh, called the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, which means the, nom- the numerical discourses. And in, in this particular collection, uh, they're usually quite short. Um, the Buddha taught a series of reflections that really have a powerful effect, you know, both in our meditation practice and in our lives. So he said, these are, these are the recollections. He said, bhikkhus, again, this is all of us. There are these five themes that should often be reflected upon by a woman or man, by a householder or one gone forth. What five? I am subject to old age. I am not exempt from old age. And just as as a reminder for myself, I love that phrase, I am not exempt. And I use that phrase a lot as different things happen. You know, in the course of my life, things unwanted, I am not exempt. And what's so odd, even with universal truths, like the body aging and getting ill and dying, for some incredibly odd reason, we think we are exempt. And so it's really to watch that. (laughs) And, And so that phrase is particularly powerful for me. Okay, so I'm subject to old age, I'm not exempt. I'm subject to illness, I am not exempt from illness. I am subject to death, I am not exempt from death. I must be parted from everyone and everything dear and agreeable to me. This is one of the five reflections. I am the owner of my karma, or the heir of my actions. I will be the heir of whatever karma, good or bad, that I do. So just frequently 
using these reflections. You know, I'm subject to illness, I'm not exempt. I'm subject to aging, I'm not exempt. Frequently reflecting on that really helps to keep us awake to these very basic truths of life. Because our society, our culture, does not do a very good job of reminding us. You know, the whole culture is geared just to covering it all up and to avoiding it and to denying it. And so we have, to, <laughs> we have to take on this responsibility, this is part of our Dharma practice, to stay awake to what is true. So in a similar recollection, the Buddha re-emphasizes and reminds us of the universality of these experiences. And this is just a further part from that same collection of discourses. Bhikkhus, what is subject to old age grows old. The instructed noble disciple, that's us, when this happens, the instructed noble disciple reflects thus, I am not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. So this is, again, it's so obvious, but it's important to recollect because it also becomes uh, the seed of compassion when we realize I am not the only one for whom what has the nature to grow old grows old. Everyone is subject to this. I'm not the only one for whom what is subject to illness grows ill. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to death dies. And it just goes on. And so it's this recollection uh, which just keeps these understandings very vivid in our minds and in our lives. There's a kind of poignant, interesting story of the famous uh, African-American tennis champion, uh, Arthur Ashe. And uh, sometime in the 80s, he contracted HIV and AIDS through a blood transfusion. He was having a heart bypass surgery and the blood was infected. And so he contracted this. And afterwards, he devoted you know, a lot of his life afterwards to trying to educate people about HIV and AIDS. And he was often asked you know, how, how he felt having contracted this illness in this way. And he said something really so striking. He said, if I were to say, God, why me, about bad things, then I should have said, God, why me, about all the good things that happened in my life. You know, and I just, when I read that, it was such a good equanimous understanding of just that in life all of these things happen. The good things happen, the bad things happen. This, this, the Taoists use the phrase, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. You know, it's just the fullness of life happens when we're alive. So when we reflect in this way, we see that our life situations are not unique. It's so easy to collapse into 
some kind of unskillful mind states regarding these afflictions of the body that happen, somehow as if it's our fault, or you know, we feel guilty, or self-pity, or whatever. You know, we can have so many unskillful relationships to it, when we forget this is just the nature, you know, the nature of the body is to grow ill, to grow old, to die. we begin to understand that there's not a single element of this great universal play of experience that actually belongs to us. It's all impersonal, it's all the elements of the body, what I've been talking about, but also of the mind. It's just the play of all these elements, acting out, manifesting their inherent nature. And in fact, the digger we deep, the, the deeper we dig into just our experience, we see that there's not a self in the first place to whom any of this belongs. And that's why the Buddha said, suppose people, suppose because people were to carry off the grass, the sticks, the branches, the foliage, in this grove, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish, would you think people are carrying us off? Or burning us, or doing with us what they wish? No, because that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. So too, form, the body is not self, feelings are not self, formations are not self, perceptions are not self, consciousness is not self. This is what we're learning. This is what we learn by being mindful. Mindfulness is not the end. You know, mindfulness establishes the capacity in the mind to see the truth of how things are, the truth of nature. So we use mindfulness as the platform for a deepening wisdom. So as a way of developing this very heightened awareness of all that life brings, the Buddha spoke of the great benefit of practicing mindfulness of death. So on one occasion, the Buddha addressed a gathering of monks, bhikkhus, mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as its consummation. But do you, bhikkhus, develop mindfulness of death? So the Buddha's talking to a group of bhikkhus here, and there were six bhikkhus who responded to this question. You know, how do you reflect, how do you contemplate on death? Now it's interesting, often in these situations where the Buddha would ask a group of monks or nuns you know, some question and then they would all uh, reply based on their experience. And very often, as each one replied, the Buddha would praise each one's understanding. Well, in this case, there was quite a different outcome. And I didn't know what was coming as I was reading this discourse. And it shocked me a little bit. 
what the Buddha had to say about these replies. So I want to just share with you what the six bhikkhus replied. So how do you contemplate death? How do you keep death in the forefront of your awareness? So the first bhikkhu said, may I live just a day and a night that I may attend to the Blessed One's teachings. Okay, so just keeping the awareness, by the end of a day and a night I may be dead. Let me attend to the teachings. And the second bhikkhu said, may I live just a single day so that I may attend to the teachings. And the third bhikkhu said, may I live just the length of time it takes to eat a single meal. So keeping awareness of death, yes, by the end of this meal, I may be dead. And the fourth bhikkhu said, may I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow four or five mouthfuls of food that I may attend to the Buddhist teachings. Even with four or five mouthfuls of food, we may die in that time. And the fifth bhikkhu said, to chew and swallow, may I live just the length of time to chew and swallow just a single mouthful of food. Just within that space of time, I may die. And the sixth said, may I live long enough just to breathe out after breathing in or to breathe in after breathing out so that I may live and attend to the Blessed One's teachings. I could accomplish much and it is this way that I develop mindfulness of death. Okay, so they were all practicing pretty, pretty well in terms, probably much better than we are, you know, in terms of keeping death the forefront of their minds. But this is what the Buddha said. With regard to the first four bhikkhus, the Buddha said, these are these are called bhikkhus who dwell heedlessly. They develop mindfulness sluggishly for the destruction of the taints. But with regard to the last two, the Buddha said, these are bhikkhus who dwell heedfully. They develop mindfulness of death keenly for the destruction of the taints. Therefore, bhikkhus, you should train yourself thus. We will we will dwell heedfully, we will develop mindfulness of death keenly for the destruction of the taints. So I was a little shocked by this, <laughs> because when I read this, and read, yeah, I may be dead by tomorrow, that seemed pretty good to me. You know, to keep, that was, or dead later today, or dead within this meal certainly dead within four or five mouthfuls of food, heedlessly, sluggishly. <laughs> it was only the last two, within this very mouthful of food, or with, within this breath, I may die. That's practicing the recollection of death keenly, heedfully. So when I read this, it was, it was really quite surprising to me, you know, it was striking. And I was on, I was on retreat when I read this. And was, so it really made me think, okay, how can I practice that? You know, how can, how can I actually put it into practice, this recollection of death keenly? And it was very surprising uh, what happened. 
So I started in the walking meditation and then applied it in the sitting. And it started just with a, a basic recollection or reminding myself, and I think we probably all share this to some extent. I think most of us probably have the aspiration that we would like to die as consciously as possible. Right? That we'd like to die with as much awareness as possible. And, you know, if, and if possible, just with that whole process you know, of, of the dying process. And it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens next. You know? And so can we really be awake for that? So what I did was actually start taking each step and being with this step as if this, this was the dying step. As if, okay, in the course of this step, death will come. And it wasn't thinking about it. This didn't take any words. It was just, it was just a remembrance, you know, a bringing that remembrance to the step. And what was so amazing was how vividly present the mind became and how effortless it was. There was absolutely no forcing of attentiveness. It was simply the framing of that experience as being the dying experience. The mind completely settled into the moment. There was no expectation, you know, of future desires or what I may want to do the next day or even, even having some better meditative experience. All of that fell away. If we're attending to a step, or attending to a breath, as if this is the dying moment. How do we want to be with it? It's quite extraordinary, the effortless, vivid quality of awareness in that moment. So I would really recommend you experiment with this, even for short periods of time. You might take, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever, just, just to start playing with bringing this heightened awareness, this recollection of death heedfully, keenly, right? because it's the immediacy of it that actually opens the mind. It frees the mind from clinging and grasping. What's also interesting in practicing in this way, because the mind is not reaching out for anything in the future, because we're right there we're in our own dying process in that moment. Right? So there's nothing to want, there's nothing to cling to. We're just attentive. What happens is, and all of this happens by itself, there's no effort needed for this. The quality in the heart and the mind at that time 
is one of tremendous openness and compassion for whatever's arising. You know, there's a great tenderness as we're with experience, and this is our dying experience. Right? The, mind, the mind settles into that open-hearted compassion, free of wanting, free of aversion. So again, I've mentioned this, you know, on different retreats, and sometimes people, you know, in trying to practice it, misinterpret it in a way and think that it takes reflecting on it as you're walking or as you're sitting. It's not, it's, this is not a reflection. It's simply, it's simply a setting the remembrance at the beginning to be with experience as your dying experience. So it doesn't take any more thought than that. You know? And I think you'll find kind of the immediacy and the clarity and the openness that comes from this reflection. And that's why the Buddha said, you know, mindfulness of death when developed and cultivated is of great fruit and benefit culminating in the deathless. It really leads to awakening. What was so striking as I began to apply this teaching, you know, in the practice for, for periods of time, is that, is that the, in the contemplate, this kind of contemplation of death, we feel incredibly more alive. We're present in a very different way for what is happening. So this, this is a powerful, powerful practice to do. I'd just like to close with uh, the last part of the Anattalakana Sutta, the Sutta on the characteristic of no-self. So because any kind of form, any kind of material phenomenon, in this case we could think of the body, whether past, future, or presently arisen, whether gross or subtle, whether in oneself or external, whether far or near, must with right understanding how it is be regarded thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Seeing thus, a noble follower finds disenchantment in form, and just this word is a very interesting word, disenchantment. It means waking up from being enchanted, you know, waking up from delusion. Experiencing this disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate, that is free from that clinging to what is not I, not self, not mine. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. So it's, it's just this very clear move towards freedom. You know, in understanding the selfless nature, we become disenchanted and becoming disenchanted, we're no longer grasping. When we're no longer grasping, the mind is liberated. And when liberated, there is knowledge, one is liberated, one understands birth is exhausted, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done is done. Of this there is no more beyond.
Now during this utterance, the hearts of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated from taints through non-clinging. So this is, this is the depth of our practice. You know, and I hope you get a sense that from, from reflecting on the teachings in this way, you see that what we're doing here, uh, it effects a profound transformation of how we understand ourselves, our lives, our bodies, the world. On this level, meditation is not a hobby. You know, it's going to the very heart of understanding the truth of our lives. Let's just sit for a few minutes. How would you be with this breath if it were your last breath? How attentive, how clear, how interested. How non-clinging. really letting go into peace. Being mindful of death not after the third ring, not after the second ring, but in this very ring. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.